It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host and your civics teacher, L. Joy Williams, and I'm so happy that you made it to class this morning. And what a wonderful morning, everybody. I see all your posts on Twitter, on social media. Everybody's like, woo, we made it. Thank you, Georgia. Thank you, Senator Warnock. Everybody is like, you know, every, all is saved. All is saved because we won one U.S. Senate seat. And look, I am just as happy as the next person that we were able to retain that seat and retain the majority in the Senate, actually get at least one more seat so you don't have to completely rely on the vice president, although we, you know, can use her vote every now and then in the U.S. Senate. And so, you know, there, there, there's some hope. And I think mainly for folks, they just could not believe that people would vote to retain power no matter who the individual is. And to that I say, have you met America? Do you really know her? <laughs> Do you really know her? Because, you know, America be doing extras. You see the videos, you see her, you hear her on the radio. <laughs> America has a reputation and every now and then, regularly, I should say, I didn't say every now, I shouldn't say every now and then, regularly we forget who she is and we forget and then are surprised by the results in terms of, of, of where we are. So yes, we celebrate, yes, that we were able to retain that seat. And, you know, particularly in Georgia, I want to shout out, you know, all of you who were out in them streets through holiday season, through the, from, you know, the summer, from the regular midterm cycle, all the way through until the runoff this past week, who were working dog-like hours in making sure to turn out voters in order to win that seat. To you, to you, my hats are off, my wig is off, my, like, you know, braids are unbraided, like, all, all of the accolades that I can give, I want to say to you, thank you, thank you, thank you for the amount of work that you have done and continue to do because, you know, I have organized with, met some, and we've had them on the show, the activists and organizers who have worked on the ground in Georgia, and they are working on the long game. So yes, that seat, that U.S. Senate seat is for another six years. And I believe there'll be a different kind of Georgia the next time the next time around because of those activists, because of those organizers, because of those voters, because of that work that was done on the ground. And look, it's easy for us to be in other states and other communities and, you know, look at them, kudos to them. And yes, all of our accolades to all of those folks who were knocking the doors and talking to voters and pulling them out. But you know, we can do the same thing. <laughs> we can do the same thing in our communities. We can do the same thing. We can talk to voters. We can organize. We can expand our territory and expand our base. Last week, I told you I was out in Iowa 
and talking to the Des Moines, Iowa branch out there. And in my speech, I talked about that. Like, even if you are in spaces where, you know, the gubernatorial leadership or the state legislature is not what you want it to be or not moving forward the way that you want it to be, you know, whether your municipal government is not the way that you would like it to be, there is still work to be done in order to get to that place. And I would encourage you, we're going to have a show coming up on that before the end of the year, to encourage you to look at the numbers, look at the turnout numbers in your communities from the midterm or if you had a runoff election or any of that, and see the number of people registered versus the number of people who actually voted in your elections. Is there a huge gap? If there's a huge gap, then there's still work to be done. There are still people that we need to organize with to convince, to engage in the political process. And for too long, we keep leaving those folks on the table. And we wait until we get to the election season. And for the candidate-based campaigns, you know, because I run them and I'm on them, I'm like, look, we you're running a candidate you don't have all of the resources in the world or all of the time in the world in order to be able to talk to voters that are not reliable in terms of turning out. That's just a fact. It's a reality. You don't have the time to do that. When you have the time to do that for those uh, community groups, for those state parties, and even candidates looking to run down the line and others, that's when you have the time during that off season to look at those numbers and look at that gap between people who are participating in the process and people who are not, and talking to people and not so much in an accusatory tone, we can go back to my show of that in terms of doing the voter blame game, but it's really like designing and working on programs and communication and conversations alongside communities on what would make you engage more in this process. You know, one is education, which is part of why we have Sunday Civics, right, is to educate people on how their voice, how their vote, how their participation would make a difference in their communities, in their lives, seeing what matters to them and engaging them in that process. This is the time to do that. This is this this what we call off season, right? Because then you don't have to do so much work when it comes to the election season, if we take the off season to actually talk to and engage with people. So one is education. Two is, you know, speaking to the issues that people care about, right? So we can't, as we're organizing, as we're talking to folks, you know, we have to understand what matters to them and what their priorities are, and then also speak to that. So you can't just ask people and do the survey, like what would make you get involved in a process or make sure to turn out and vote, and then they tell you what it is, and then you're like, well, that's great. Let me talk to you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Like you go off into, you know, like another tangent. You have to speak to the issues that people care about, whether it's job security, whether it's organizing, whether it's, you know, trash in the community, Community, whether it's affordable housing, whatever the issue is that communities bring up as to the reason why they don't engage because this issue, they don't see any movement on that issue. 
those are the issues you have to work on in order to get people engaged from there. So education, speaking to what matters to people, and then also making it relevant to how their participation would make an impact on the thing that they care about. And then it's also continuing to build your squad and, you know, hone your skills. Um, Again, so we don't have to build from scratch every time an election cycles on and then you got to pump people up and, you know, tell people you ain't black if you don't vote. And, you know, they died for, you know, our right to vote. All of, you know, I, I get it. But do the work in the off season. And then you won't have to do that much pumping up during the election season because people will see, they will automatically get how this connects to their work and you expand your base as an organization, as a political party, as an institution, right? The more people that you engage, that you talk to, that you give empower to have their voice heard when it comes to election cycle again we won't have to do the the pump up (laughs) that is done for every election cycle but I am encouraged because there are you know more focus on these midterm elections on what they they call the off cycle elections from there but it don't stop because There's more elections in 2023. Every time you turn around, there's an election. And 2023 is no stranger. There will be elections come 2023, your municipal elections, maybe county elections from there. And so we have to get ready, um, get ready for that process. But, you know, yes, there's the holidays in between. Definitely to those of you who knocked them doors and made them calls and was out in the streets, take your rest because we need to learn from you as we go into uh, this next civic engagement season. But we want you to get your rest. We don't want you to be, you know, out working all the time. So take your rest. Shout out to y'all for all of the work. And when we come back for the show, I actually wanted to bring some lawyers to the front of the class to talk about some cases I know that I'm following, one of which was in the news this week called the independent legislature theory is one issue. And we have one of the lawyers from the ACLU is going to talk about that. And then also a case that was just brought this week here in New York City, in Manhattan to be specific, about those formerly incarcerated or felony convicted being able to participate in jury service. So we're going to have the attorney for that case from the New York Civil Liberties Union to talk about that as well. And to talk about my little theory, which is the nefarious people who are trying to chip away at democracy and law and all of that. You know, I'm not going to say it's a tinfoil hat theory because I think it's real. I think there are people definitely focused on that and and yeah and and they bring cases to state courts appellate courts and all the way to the supreme court and so we have to be aware of that and not always on the defensive but i wanted to bring those attorneys to explain to us what those cases are and the impact that they can have on our democracy overall so we'll talk more about that when we come back here on Sunday Civics. Schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, L. Joy Williams, and your civics teacher. 
And now that I have reminded you that you know America very well, and so while, yes, we can be happy about one election and one Senate seat, there is still more work to be done, I thought I would put into context and bring some folks to the front of the class to talk about some of that other work that is happening. Because again, we can get really caught up in what's happening in DC, what's happening with the president, what's happening in Congress, and not that there are other things happening. And yes, while we can take a breather because of the holiday season, there is still work ahead. So I have some folks to bring to the front of the class, some lawyers, breathe. They're not that bad. (laughs) In fact, (laughs) some lawyers, lots of lawyers help us in this struggle for civil and social rights. And so you may remember Perry Grossman, the super supervising attorney at the New York Civil Liberties Union. He focuses primarily on litigation and advocacy as it pertains to voting rights and election law issues. He has been on the show before, partly because he was my partner in good trouble in advocating for the John R. Lewis voting rights of Act of New York. Perry, welcome back to Sunday Civics. Hi, Eljoy. It's so good to see you. (laughs) And coming for the first time to the front of the class is Ari Savitsky. Ari, did I get that right? You got it. All right. So Ari is a senior staff attorney at ACLU, Voting Rights Project, and he was before that an assistant solicitor general in the state of New York. And he's argued a number of different cases in the appellate court, in the Supreme Court, even on a number of different constitutional and statutory matters, including on gerrymandering, which, you know, we've done here before. Ari, thanks so much for joining Sunday Civics. Thanks so much for having me. I'm what a pleasure to be here. I've not argued in the U.S. Supreme Court. No, day. no, just in, in various courts of appeals. Okay, what? so it's not a lie if you're manifesting it. So, like, I'm like, <laughs> hopefully, it's in a case that I, that I wanted to be in the U.S. Supreme Court and not in a case that I didn't want to be there. And and I'll just say also, thank you for having. Me. It's such an honor to be with two of the leaders of that successful effort to to pass an incredible new voting rights law in the state of New York. So I'm I'm quite honored to be to be with with both of you. I know how much effort you both put into that. Thank you so much, Ari. So I actually I'm going to start with you because this is your first time on the show and I always ask guests for their first time for them to share the story of their first civic action. Okay. Well, it's it's hard to so let me say this, if, if, if it counts to say arguing with my, you know, seventh grade, you know, history and social studies teacher about what was, I guess, the 1996 <laughs> presidential election, when we went back and forth in front of the whole class, and, and I had to sort of stand my ground and explain why Bob Dole wasn't the best candidate for America, and, and you know, why I thought Bill Clinton should be reelected, you know, then, then maybe it's that. I mean, my, the way I sort of got you know, interested in, 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 in democracy was through the, the lens of politics. And that's sort of a, an early, you know, memory. But then later on, I worked in, you know, my first job out of college was managing a state rep campaign and learned a lot about democracy, knocking doors, organizing, and, and sort of, you know, what our, what our system is, is, is built on, which is, which is voters taking action and, and, uh, and 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 getting organized and 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 electing candidates and 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 leaders who represent them and their values. 
So and okay. I found it inspiring. So absolutely arguing with your social studies teacher or the person like counts as a first civic action because right. you're trying to convince like you're 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 doing you know debates you have to argue your point like all of the things that all of the tools that are necessary whether you are working legislatively whether you are out in the street trying to you know get voters to pick a particular candidate i would say that counts as a um civic action and particularly because i was also that student that was often arguing with professors and stuff and i say professors because you're saying that was middle school for you in 96 jesus that was freshman year for me <laughs> like i'm like a little well, over clamped right now. Anyway, Ari, thanks so much for sharing that. And not because of you, it's also because of like, wow, I could be a lawyer by now if I would have went to law school. But Perry does a great job of convincing me that I do not need um, to become a lawyer, that I can just use folks like himself and you now, Ari, because now you get to get my text messages on like, can't we sue over, over something? So welcome to the club. I'm I'm always welcome to receive those text messages, you know, and 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 it seems that your efforts and work so far are proof positive that you don't need to be a lawyer to make change and improve our democracy. So Ari, I brought you on because in the news this week, there has been conversation about this little known theory that seemed to come out of nowhere. And I wanted to make sure because it has a significant impact on our election process, on redistricting, I wanted to make sure that we understood what this theory is, <laughs> what it isn't, that it's a theory, and you know what the case and everything is. I'm referring, of course, to the Moore case. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to just you know level set the class, as you will, and tell us what this issue is. Sure. Yes, yeah, the, the little theory that could upend how our democracy and American constitutional government are supposed to work. This this case, this Moore case was argued yesterday in the Supreme Court, comes out of a case in North Carolina. The state legislature in North Carolina drew congressional districts that just heavily favored one party over the other, extreme partisan gerrymandering, drawing them for one party and, 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 and hurting the other party and the voters who support the other party. Um, and the proponents of fair districts sued in the state courts. Federal courts are not involved. They went to the state Supreme Court. They said state, the state constitution, the North Carolina constitution says that these, we need to have fair districts. We have a free elections clause in our constitution. We have provisions in our constitution that require fair districts. And the state Supreme Court agreed and required the state to draw fair districts. But the legislative leaders who drew those unfair, the extreme you know, partisan gerrymandered districts then appealed to the Supreme Court. And they said, Supreme Court, you should step in because the, we, the state legislature, are the only ones who can draw these districts. And state Supreme Courts and state constitutional rules cannot stop us from drawing the districts the way we want to draw. And, and, and they say, because we as the legislature are independent, we are the independent state legislature. So this theory is called the independent state legislature theory. And the idea is that when state legislators, this is how the theory goes. And it, it may sound a little odd when I explain it. When state legislatures make rules about federal elections, they make rules without any checks and balances, without the normal checks and balances that we think of in our constitutional system. 
So without state courts saying, hey, that might violate the state constitution, they can make this. St- the idea is the state legislatures can make rules, even if the rules violate their own state constitution, the very document that creates the state legislature in the first place. They hang their hat for this rule on, on the fact that the U.S. Constitution says that uh, rules for the time, place, and manner of federal elections are, 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 are created in the first instance by the legislature of the state. And they say, oh, it says legislature in the U.S. Constitution. Okay. But for a number of reasons, I don't think that holds any water. I certainly think when the folks that wrote the Constitution use the word legislature, they were thinking of a legislature in the way that we think about it now, in the way that we fundamentally think about a legislature when we think about how American government works, which is one body among others that operates within a constitutional system of checks and balances. And so what this case is about is whether or not state legislatures get to act outside of that system and make rules to draw districts, but also about who can vote, whose votes count, and all the other rules around federal elections that can be outcome determinative and that can that can that can lead to highly undemocratic results. So it's a pretty technical argument that they're making, but the end but, result. Would be- but I mean, Ari, as you're saying it, and again, those of us who are listening, a lot of us could not be lawyers. And even though you're saying that it's you know a technical issue in terms of hanging their hat on one particular clause in the U.S. Constitution. This has, could have, depending on how this case is decided, have significant impact on our elections process and on the redistricting process. You know, we just here in the state of New York just went through a process in terms of our, you know, we created an independent redistricting commission. The commission couldn't come up with maps. It goes back to the state legislature. State legislature draws the maps. Then they get, you know, get sued because of it or whatever. But things could change if they're saying, well, you know, there's no checks and balances on state legislatures to do this. Then it's like, OK, that opens the door for a lot of other things. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So and and let's it, in a couple ways. And we talked we at, at the ACLU, we did an amicus brief and we sort of talked about a lot of the different effects this could have. But this came up yesterday in the, in the argument. I mean, New York redistricting in New York was discussed at the Supreme Court yesterday at one point because, you know, you might think, oh, well, you know, this 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 case is about Democrats versus Republicans, right? Because in North Carolina, it was the Republican legislators that drew districts that benefit Republicans. Well, you know, in, in other states, in New York, you had a sort of the partisan valence, if you want to look at it that way, like whose sort of, you know, benefits, you know, was flipped, but you did have state state courts you know, and getting getting involved in districting and and beyond that, setting aside what you what you think about what the state court did there and, and why you think it did it, New York has, you know, a, a constitutional amendment that it adopted, as you as you mentioned, right? So and New York's like Ohio has it, Florida has it. Like there have been so many efforts to make districting fair in this country. And people have fought hard in so many states to draw different constitutional amendments make these rules fair all that stuff goes out the window if you can't get courts to enforce it and that's just on the districting front right then you talk about all the other constitutional rules about elections being fair about you know the right to the secret ballot is in many different you know constitutions i mean we have 50 state constitutions they have had rules about elections you know for hundreds of years 
the idea that now all of a sudden a legislative body that may be very partisan and may have very short term sort of interest to, you know, to have some folks be able to vote and some folks not be able to vote or have certain outcomes that they can just throw all those rules out the window. It would be it, it could it could have catastrophic results. Yeah. And also the implication in terms of, I think, breaking the U.S. Constitution in terms of who, who supersedes what, <laughs> like in what and in, in, in what discussions. I feel like there's some like nefarious long game here or am I being alarmist? Well, I don't I, I don't I don't. I mean, say say more about the nefarious long game. I so I believe the nefarious long game is again, you know, the the the, you know, like we're saying, this independent legislature theory is something that was, you know, small. It's not like something that was discussed and came up from the people, <laughs> you know, right? Like it's something that came out of like comments of one decision, you know, or something written in a in a decision in a dissent a couple of years ago, well, yeah, more than a couple of years ago, right? And I'm just thinking, is this also connected to another small nefarious viewpoint in that, you know, again, we're a collection of states and the federal government has no power over us, right? (laughs) And then do we then have this separation of, you know, particular states that are deciding, well, you know, we're going to throw off the shackles of the federal government and, you know, rule our state and our locals here. Perry, you know, again, Perry knows my mind and knows that, you know, I'm often thinking of like, what is, what, what is the long game here in terms of, particularly as you see all of these other cases on different issues where they're trying to say, you know, the state has, you know, the state has control here, not the federal government. Could that boil over not to just voting rights and redistricting, but also, you know, taxes and marriage and, you know, sort of all of those other kinds of things? A couple couple things to say is, one, it seems to be that the advancement of this theory, which is inconsistent with a lot of, well, any principles of federalism, right? And certainly, Federalism is a, is, a, is a technical term. You may be more familiar with the more nefarious term states' rights, which has been used over the years. But you've got a group that has talked about states' rights for time immemorial, now advancing a theory that somehow major state actors, state constitutions, should all be thrown out the window in favor of this one particular entity that is created by the state constitution should be unchecked by anyone. And so... I do sort of see long-term nefarious political ends in that there is a total inconsistency between, you know, that that principle of federalism that they purport to want to vindicate all the time and the total vitiating of two-thirds of state government, not to mention the people of, of, of various states, by giving this weird primacy to the state legislature. And so... I see, I see inconsistency there. And then just as a real politic matter, you know, it seems to arise because state courts, when state courts make more progressive decisions, right? The Ari will know this better than I can, but obviously in the Bush v. Gore case, which I think is the first judicial emergence of the state legislature, the ISL theory in, in, in Rehnquist's concurrence, you know, that was a Florida Supreme Court that did things that 
conservative justices didn't like. In North Carolina, we have a, a, a more progressive Supreme Court doing things that a Republican legislature doesn't like. We've seen it also in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and not that these are necessarily progressive far left legislature courts by any stretch of the imagination, but they are to the left of the legislatures that have been ensconcing, you know, candidly Republicans in power. So, you know, I see sort of naked political ambition here without a whole lot of of good grounding in, in legal theory. And, you know, sure, in New York, New York State could have said, right, the, the legislature could have said, well, the independent state legislature doctrine means we get to do whatever we want in terms of gerrymandering. But that's not what New York did, right? Like, for all of the gripes about the Harkin-Rider decision, and that's a completely separate conversation, the legislature has abided by it, right? The legislature, disagreeing with the decision, to be sure, has said, we have a state constitution. It puts state courts in this position. They've made a decision based on the state constitution, and we are going to abide by that. That is the way democracy is supposed to work. So, you know, you could say that New York is to some extent playing with one hand tied behind its back here, but really what New York is doing is adhering to the rule of law by saying we we give real weight to our state constitution, we give real weight to our state courts, even when we don't necessarily agree with them in the majoritarian matter. So that's how I see the sort of nefarious long game is that it is a political gambit. I don't think any serious legal scholar looks at the independent state legislature theory and says, yeah, this is, this is sound. This is strong. Ari, but I, I hear, I, I hear you, Perry. And I, and, and to your point in terms of people respecting, you know, the, the rule of law and the state constitution, but we have all evidence that, and at least in the most recently, obviously we can go back further that this has happened before, but in most recently, there are those attempts, Ari, where it's just like, nope, I'm like, I don't care what the, <laughs> like what the court said or what this or whatever, like I'm moving full steam ahead on, on, you know, this theory or what I believe to be true. Well, look, there's certainly the, the dynamic where you have, you know, a state Supreme Court saying this is what the state constitution requires and then the sort of political actors in the legislature who don't like that, you know, try to go, you know, try to go over their heads, so to speak, to get a different result. I mean, I see that I see that historical resonance there. I, I do think, though, you know, as as Perry was talking, like it makes me think of like the, the it's like the dog catching the car to some extent. Let me explain what I mean. Like all of the sort of what we think of as conservative legal theories, you know, like federalism and states rights or if, if states if, if we're trying to respect states rights and the rights of states to organize their governments i mean states have constitutions and they say we're gonna have a supreme court we're gonna empower our supreme court to say what the law is say what the constitution of the state means and so it disrespects the way this state has decided to organize itself and its government to to have a federal court come in and, and undercut the state Supreme Court and say, no, you don't have the powers that your state constitution gives you, that the people of the state gave you, right? So that's the federalism piece. But then there's also history, right? Original meat. We've heard, we've heard so much about history and the importance of, you know, originalism in a lot of decisions, not, not just in, in the voting rights and elections area recently, right? But if you look at history, um, you know, there's, there's no, I mean, this is a, this is a theory that is, as we've discussed, like emerged around the time of Bush v. Gore, it's not a theory that has some strong, you know, historical 
backing and indeed like historically we've had election rules and state constitutions enforced by state courts you know for you know for 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 decades for centuries the other point that i would make is you know the 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 commonality is that the supreme court will be the ultimate arbiter right if you if you if you put some version of this rule into effect it doesn't mean that the states get to decide their state legislatures get to decide things with no with no one checking them but there'll only be one check and it'll be the supreme court right and so that that's the institutional relationship that's that there's an institutional dynamic here where the state legislature is running is asking the supreme court to give them the superpower but if you put this rule into effect then it'll be the federal courts and the supreme court that are the ones that have the the sort of backstop and so what you i think what you saw in the argument yesterday was there wasn't a lot of interest in the dog fully catching the car and creating this new rule that totally frees state legislatures from their own constitution. But there was interest from some of the justices, especially those ones that are now sort of in, in, in the middle, you know, so to speak of the court in some kind of rule that, that, that would continue to give the Supreme court a role in maybe stepping in into the relationship between state legislatures, state courts, and state constitutions, where we normally don't have federal courts step in, absent mm-hmm. some federal right. Right. Well, I want to switch gears really quickly, and Perry, talk to you about a case that you just filed this week here in New York, particularly focused on Manhattan regarding jury service. So as we switch gears, I want you to come to the front of the class and talk to us about the issue you filed this week. Sure. I, I, first of all, I appreciate you having me on to talk about it. But I think it's actually great that it's juxtaposed with Ari's discussion of Morvey Harper, because Morvey Harper is fundamentally a defensive case for anybody who cares about democracy. It is an emergency, a, a, a five-alarm fire to protect democracy against Morvey Harper. And so that is defensive in nature. But we still have to be on the offensive. We still have to be doing whatever we can to root out historical discrimination to keep making progress. And so the case that we filed this week is really trying to advance progress forward. And so we've challenged the exclusion of people convicted of felonies from jury service as applied in New York County, in Manhattan. And first of all, let me say that this is not wholly divorced from voting. In fact, I think jury service and voting are really two rights in in, in the that are closely linked, right? So it's voting that ensures people's ability to to maintain accountability over elected officials. And it's jury service that gives people the opportunity to hold the courts accountable, to hold prosecutors accountable, to hold the administration of the law accountable. So these are both institutions that are fundamental to Republican self-government, democratic self-government, to self-government as we know it. And so what we've seen is a long history of racialized law enforcement, right? And certainly we know about a a, a deep history of racialized law enforcement here in New York City, going back to, you know, time memorial, but in terms of the people who are alive to serve on a jury today, for sure, the drug war, stop and frisk, broken windows, the gang database has targeted black New Yorkers. And the result is that black New Yorkers are disproportionately grossly disproportionately convicted of felonies, so much so that it actually depresses Black representation in the jury pool in Manhattan. And so what we filed is a case under the Sixth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment to 
enjoin that disqualification, that categorical bar on people with felony convictions serving on juries. And what does that mean? It means that people with felony convictions will have the same opportunity to be in a jury pool as everybody else. It doesn't mean that every jury is going to have a person with a felony conviction on it. It just means that they will be subject to the kind of individualized screening that everyone else goes through, right? There's a process called voir dire in, in any trial where the parties are able to ask questions of prospective jurors and see who has conflicts of interest, who has incurable biases that would prevent them from being fair and impartial jurors. And, you know, people with felony convictions there's no indication that as a category, they are unfit to serve on juries. People with felony convictions are just like any other members of our community who made a mistake, got caught for it, were punished for it. We have plenty of members of our community who have made mistakes and never been caught for it or been caught for it and not punished for it by the criminal legal system. And so it puts people with felony convictions and in New York and in Manhattan, that is disproportionately grossly disproportionately black people on the same footing as, as everybody else. And so hopefully this case will lead to better representation for black people in the jury pool, but really a better jury system for everybody. Because when we have massive underrepresentations of any group in the jury pool, it undermines confidence in the fairness of the system. Right. And this isn't just about criminal cases. This is about civil cases, too. You know, civil rights cases, slip and fall cases, any kind of case that could go in front of a jury. Um, you know, it's important to have a diverse pool, a racially diverse pool, but one that also has a diversity of life experience. And that can include familiarity with the criminal legal system. And so, you know, this case is attempting to shine light on what is a longstanding fundamental injustice um, that happens to arise in stark relief in New York County, in Manhattan, because there is such an incredible concentration of law enforcement attention to black people here in a way that, you know, we have the worst black white disparities in felony convictions by race of any county in the state. I think black people are convicted of felonies in Manhattan at a rate of about 21 to one compared to white people. And when you look in particular at the race gender intersection, we think about black men, right? Black men are convicted at an even higher rate compared to certainly white men, white people as a whole, and, and white women. One of the things we looked at was how are black men policed in the drug war compared to white women? Black men in Manhattan are convicted of drug felonies at a rate of 130 to one compared to white women. Um, but studies show that actually drug use and drug sales don't even vary that much, not certainly not remotely that much or, or at all by race and gender. So what we are seeing is this history of racialized law enforcement impacting the ability of the black community to influence the administration of justice. And because this is a permanent ban, right? Because if you're an 18 year old, who has been convicted of a possession offense back in 1986, you are a 54 year old today who may not be able to serve on a jury. We have a rights restoration process in New York. It is extremely burdensome. It is extremely intrusive. For anyone who spent time in state prison, it requires a, a parole officer to actually come into your home 
You have to disclose things like your tax returns, the people you live with, everyone you've been married to. That is not a process that should be a barrier to a fundamental right of, of citizenship, of, of democratic participation, like serving on a jury. Yeah. Well, you know, and this is not out of the, you know, sort of out of the box thinking. I, I just came back from Iowa delivering a speech for the Iowa, Des Moines, Iowa, NAACP, and the Iowa Supreme Court did an order, I think, back in 2021 that restored the ability of uh, Iowans who served their sentence, served their time or whatever to be considered or be in the pool for jury service. There was some, you know, dispute about that. <laughs> but m mainly the Iowa Nebraska, Iowa, Nebraska NAACP there, you know, argued some of the similar issues, right? Like that there is this disparity here. And, you know, they use different stories, as you mentioned, if you did something at 18, served your time and things like that, like for the life, I'm not able to <laughs> like to serve. And, you know, and we have the same view even about voting. Right. And it doesn't matter at what age. It doesn't matter in terms of circumstances that if you've completed this time, if you've done this thing and we say we are talking about restorative justice, people getting back into society, why not also, you know, be able to be included? And as you said, it's not like it's just like, OK, we're going to put every jury must have one convicted felon on it, <laughs> like because I think that's what people hear when, you know, when when discussing this, is it that? Yeah, I mean, I think people engage in a lot of lies and fear mongering anytime you hear about any reform, any restorative justice, when we're talking about the criminal legal system. That is, of course, you know, what we're talking about is people all being treated as individuals and not making assumptions based on, you know, one mistake that they might have been caught for and punished for earlier in their life, right? One of the things that we note in, their comp in our complaint is cops who lie on the stand they're still allowed to get, to, they don't lose their eligibility to serve on a jury. They're never criminally prosecuted, right? They're not even fired for it. Are they showing the kind of untrustworthiness that we don't want to see on juries? Absolutely. But are they categorically barred from serving on a jury if a court has said, you know, this police officer is lying to me? No, no. And if we're going to allow that, there's absolutely no reason we shouldn't allow people you know, many of whom have old, stale convictions, you know, from when they were young to, to, to not serve on juries or to face, you know, these, these really, really high bars to having their rights restored. Um, this is such a common sense thing. That's why, you know, we're not seeing massive outcries from, from, from the Manhattan DA's office that this is a bad thing because they know they've got the tools to go through voir dire and find out who's, who's, who's going to be a good juror, who's going to be a fair an impartial juror. So because we've got the tools we need to make sure that people have jurors in front of them who don't have incurable biases, who don't have conflicts of interest, you know, there's just no need for this kind of categorical bar. And then when you consider the fact that felony convictions are not handed out evenly, they are not handed out randomly. You know, we have findings of intentional discrimination on a programmatic level against the city of New York, the New York City Police Department, you know, any anybody, anybody knows that the administration of the criminal legal system in, in New York, like a lot of other places, is not even handed from a racial perspective. And so, you know, this is an important racial justice measure. 
it's an important justice measure overall, but it's also just an important democracy measure. I don't think people fully grasp how critical jury service is, right? Mostly when you hear about jury duty, it's how do I get out of it? But the immense amount of power and like important power that a jury has, whether it's a civil case, a criminal case, or a grand jury to decide, you know, who's going to face that extremely serious sanction of, 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 a, of an indictment. You know, there's so much power there. It's really important that everybody who is, who, who we're not discriminating, certainly on the basis of race, but that we're not discriminating against, against anybody on the basis of a nonsensical characteristic. Yeah. All right. So, you know, just as we wrap up here, I want to ask for, for both of you, you know, there was a lot of attention, obviously, because we're in a midterm election cycle, there's a lot of attention focused on the elections, certainly for Congress, the Senate races, as we, you know, Georgia's finally decided from there. And then as certain cases go to the Supreme Court based upon media coverage, you know, certain things get you know, get to the top of the, you know, public discussion and kind of fade away. What in your estimate, because I'm always trying to encourage people to look beyond just what's happening in the White House and what's happening in Congress or what case is being, dis you know, discussed, you know, and why are some of the Supreme Court justices terrible, right? Like that's the extent of the conversation. What are some of the things that you would advocate if someone says, you know, Ari, I'm, con you know, you brought this case up to me. This is something I should be concerned of. Are there other things on the horizon that you think we should pay attention to? And, and Perry, I'll ask the same of you. Are there other things that we need to pay attention to that have, that could have a real impact on our democracy? Sure. So I think, you know, first of all, and, and maybe it's unfortunate, but, you know, re, the, the, the fight over redistricting and what districts will apply sort of isn't over yet. A lot of that has been put on, put on hold uh, or a lot of the federal cases around the Voting Rights Act have been put on hold because the Supreme Court took a Voting Rights Act case uh, out of Alabama earlier this year. But, but there will be additional trials and, and challenges to some of the districts that were, that were, that were drawn across the country. You know, I, I know we at the Voting Rights Project are working on many of them, and in, in, especially in, in, in the South and in places like Georgia. There was just a trial that wrapped up in South Carolina that we and, and, and other groups, including LDF, were involved in. So the redistricting fight and the fight for fair districts is still very much going on. And, and districts at the county level and the commission level, I mean, representation happens at every single level. A lot of states will have off-year elections and county elections. I know I've been, you know, focused in some of my work on Pennsylvania. And so not just the districting, but who sort of gets to vote and whose votes will be counted. You know, one thing that I've been focused on is is, is mail balloting. I mean, during the pandemic, so many more people were looking for a way to make voting easier, to avoid long lines, keep themselves safe. And there was a tremendous expansion in mail ballot voting that really benefited democracy and access to the ballot. And there have been a lot of fights over whether that expansion will remain and, and efforts to curb mail voting. And so so that's one thing that I'm looking at for, for ways that we can continue to expand the right to vote and make it easier to vote. And most people, if you ask people who aren't, you know, super partisan, you just talk to someone on the street and say, hey, should it be like easy to vote? Do you not have to stand in line for a long time? Should there be a way to vote by mail? Should there be alternatives? They'll say, yeah, of course. 
And, and so I think that's a place where there's actually a lot of agreement and there are a lot of also new efforts being made to make voting easier. And, and, and there's and, and there's continued potential to expand, especially, you know, on the state and local level. Yeah. Perry? I'm going to seize on something Ari said to try and take it down to the local level again, because I want people to do the things in the places where they're going to be most impactful. By all means, pay attention to everything Ari said, because he's right. He's a good, smart guy. You should listen to him. But I want you to look at your community, right? You are going to be an effective actor most when you're dealing with the folks that you know, when you're dealing with the community that you live in, right? Local governments have so much power. Local courts have so much power, right? So for sure, you know, I want you to make sure that, you know, you're registered to vote and that you're voting and that when you're getting a jury summons, that you're showing up for that, and that you're encouraging other people to do it. Um, you know, when, when Ari is talking about redistricting at the county level, at the local level, you know, we pay a lot of attention to federal elections and, and certainly they get a lot of coverage in the media. But, but the fact is the primary services that you and your community receive, you know, every day, public education, housing, transportation, public safety, zoning, you name it, that's coming from the local government level. That is coming from cities and villages and towns and counties. And so, you know, I would encourage you because ultimately the litigation that Ari and I do is really in service of organizing and in service of policy work, right? So Eljoy, you don't need to be a lawyer because we work for you already. We need more folks to go out there and do what you do, which is to make people understand their political power and make sure that their community is being responsive to their needs. And that comes from participating for making sure that you're holding your elected officials, but particularly your local elected officials accountable um, for delivering the services in, in a, in a fair and effective way to, to all of your community members. Yeah. Well, guys, thank you so very much. And Ari, welcome to the text club of can I sue? And I am so looking forward to this. Text. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not sorry. It's a good club. This, it sounds like a much better version of like, like law school hypos have nothing on the text that I'm expecting to receive now. So bring <laughs> no, I come up, I, I come up with new schemes all the time. I'm just like, can I sue for this? Like what will be the, you know, most of it is you guys talking me down from suing, but you know, occasionally you'll say, huh, I should look into that. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to seeing if we can get in some good trouble together. Sounds great. And Perry, thanks again for always, always jumping in, always pitching in and being, now you're an official regular on the show. I love it. It's all I've ever wanted. <laughs> all right. We'll be right back with more Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Thank you to Ari Savitsky from the ACLU Voting Rights Project and Perry Grossman from the New York Civil Liberties Union for joining us at the front of the class this morning. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics. I'm Eljoy Williams, your civics teacher. And as I said last week, you have issues or things that you want us to discuss here on Sunday Civics, feel free to send it to me, joy at sundaycivics.org. And maybe we'll incorporate it in the new year in our upcoming show. Hopefully you have a wonderful and fantastic holiday season for those of you who celebrate and for those of you who do not and just have the time off. Honey, take your rest. We'll be back next Sunday. Bye.